Good morning. My name is Misty Denman, and I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team, and I'm really so glad to be with you here this morning. And I want to say um, good morning and a shout-out to my West Campus people as well. Many of you probably know this, but Women in the Word happens four times a week now. Of course, here on Thursday mornings and again on Thursday evenings. But we also have a West Campus Wednesday morning and Wednesday evening study as well. So it's been so fun to be a part of God's Word leaving this place and going into our surrounding communities. This morning we get to continue in the story of Genesis and the beginning. The beginning of mankind the beginning of God's relationship with men, and I um, have just loved this study so much um, and what it's illuminated um, as to who God is and who we are um, in relationship with him. You'll remember in Genesis 1 that we get this awesome bird's eye view as God speaks this whole world into existence. And what a gift that is. You know, he didn't have to share any of that story with us. It could have been a complete mystery as to how we got here and how all of this came about. But it really is a gift, I think, that he shows us and tells us how all of this happened. And we see his loving hand in that. And then in Genesis 2, I love that he creates woman and tells us that all women are created in his image. And I, I um, have so appreciated that reminder that because we're made in his image, that is where our value as women come from, and that is a gift as well. And then two weeks ago, we studied Genesis 3, and that is a hard chapter where we see the rebellion and the fall of mankind and Adam and Eve having to leave the garden but even in that is this great blessing and mercy from God as he personally clothes Adam and Eve in those skins and covers their shame. And last week, we got to put all of chapters 1, 2, and 3 together and see that as believers, our worldview, how we look at the world and think about the world, is shaped out of this. And that is a gift as well. I am so glad I get to know that my life is based on absolute truth that comes from the holy and living God. And today we get to come to Genesis 4 and that second generation of mankind, Adam and Eve's children. And I have to tell you that as the mother of two boys, this story feels very personal to me. So at my house, there are lots and lots of times when my two boys play really well together. There's lots of times I find them out in the backyard throwing a ball or kicking a ball to each other or building Legos together. And there's even some times, and I really treasure these moments, where I'll kind of find them in this sort of heads bent together in this sort of um, whispered conversation. And I don't know what they say, but there's just this sense of camaraderie about it and, and brotherhood about it. And I think, you know, they have this bond that only the two of them will ever have of um, the knowledge of what it is to be a kid in our particular family. And that will sort of, I hope, go with them uh, through their whole lives. But then there are other moments, and they almost always happen when I'm in the middle of cooking dinner and there's like three things about to come off at once where I'll hear this um, particular, and I know exactly what it means, sort of primal grunting and smacking and all sorts of noises that you don't want to hear right when three things are coming off the stove. And I know without even looking that they are somewhere in another part of the house or in the yard sort of rolling around like two bear cubs trying their level best to kill each other. And 
<laughs> and that happens more than I wish it did. But sometimes when it happens, I think, I feel like I know a little bit of what Eve experienced as she watched her two boys sort of go at each other. And so it just feels um, Eve and her motherhood experience like a personal um, something that we can understand. Well, with that, let's open our Bibles and look together at Genesis 4 and find out what God tells us about the history of the first set of brothers and this second gener generation of mankind. So open up to chapter 4 and we'll read verses 1 through 7 together. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So chapter 4 opens with this sense of hope and expectation. It, it, it opens just as Adam and Eve have been expelled for the, from the garden and the tragedy that is there. But then, and you know that life has been forever and tragically altered, but then you see the birth of these children. And I, I think about any time I have held or seen a newborn baby, and I think about all of the hope and expectation that's wrapped up in seeing a new baby. And you think they've got this whole life ahead of them. They haven't yet made any of the mistakes that sometimes weigh us down, any of the poor choices um, that define our lives. They get a chance to do it right. And I, I can't help but think that Adam and Eve must have had um, something of that sense as well, that they have done what they have done and there are consequences to that. But here in these children, and the new, their children is a new chance to get things right. But in this very um, next sentence, we see that that was not to be. Adam um, and Eve's children, Cain and Abel, have grown up. They have taken on honorable professions. Abel is a sheep rancher, and Cain is a farmer. And these two brothers each bring an offering to the Lord, a sacrificial offering. Now, Genesis is a book full of beginnings, and here is one now. This is the first time in Scripture that we see man give a sacrificial offering to the Lord. And we'll see that there is a right way and a wrong way for man to present that offering to the Lord. You know, one of the things that has struck me in these weeks since we've been studying Genesis is that there is a lot to discover in it, and a lot that I have personally been reminded of and learned afresh about who God is. But there are also a lot of things left unsaid in the book of Genesis. And so given that, here's what happens to me sometimes as I'm reading different places in Scripture, but I've noticed it a lot in Genesis. I'll read one of the lines such as, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering, and then off my mind goes. And I think, hmm, what exactly was that offering? 
Where was it given? How did they know to give it? What did that look like? Did God tell them to give it? Did they come up with the th- this idea themselves? And then I'm off on, and what are we having for dinner tonight? And then I have totally forgotten what I was reading. And it, it really is good and profitable to um, engage the scriptures in that way and to look um, at what's happening that's not said. But I think we have to come to terms with in Genesis that sometimes there are questions left and answered, and that is okay, um, especially when I get to focus on what there is to discover in it. And I've just come to the conclusion that God has told us in Genesis what he wants us to know and that there is plenty there. Um, and he doesn't satisfy every question and curiosity we have, but he does tell me everything he intended to know. So in this vein of thinking, there are some things we know and some things that we do not know about these two offerings given by Cain and Abel. We discovered in our homework um, this week that an offering is presenting something of value to God as an act of worship or devotion. How is it that Cain and Abel knew to make this offering? Theologians do believe that this offering was given by instruction from God. At some prior point, not recorded in the scriptures, God has communicated his will that mankind offer a sacrificial, a a sacrifice to him, an offering to him as an act of worship. And that offering would be a tangible and concrete way for man to respond to the provision of God with gratitude and with humility and with worship. And as for these offerings, we're simply told that God had regard for Abel's offering, but not for Cain's. The acceptance of Abel's offering and the rejection of Cain's, we will find is at its core a heart issue for both of these men. Now, a casual observer might have watched this scene unfold and observed each man bringing a portion of what was essentially his income. Cain brings some of his crop, and Abel brings some of his sheep. So what's the problem? Why did God have regard for the one and not the other? One reason may have been that Abel presented a blood sacrifice, that that sheep would have been an animal blood sacrifice, and that that would have been something prescribed by God while Cain brought some of the fruit of the ground that he had grown. But look back with me again at verses 3 and 4. Cain brought some fruit of the ground, and Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And so it seems as though Abel has brought the first and the best of what he had to give, while Cain did not. It does not mention that Cain brought his first fruits or the first of his income, but just that he brought some of what he had. He brought, um, Abel brought the best he had out of a worshipful and reverent heart that was acceptable to God, while Cain, it seems, just half-heartedly went through the motions of this sacrifice. He brought an offering to the Lord, but there is no indication in the wording of this text that that offering was his best, and that was what God desired from him. Cain's casual offering mirrored to a casual heart toward God. God is not a casual observer 
in the giving of this offering. In his omniscience, he sees right into Cain's heart. He knows and perceives that Cain's offering offering was given for the wrong reasons. It was perhaps just out of obligation. Perhaps Cain cared more about his reputation and what others saw him doing than what he was actually doing for God. Whatever it was that was going on on inside of him, it was not true worship. And unfortunately, this won't be the last time that we come across someone um, whose heart isn't in line with their outward show of devotions. I think of the Pharisees in Jesus' time, and they had issues with outward showing of devotion without the heart that matched it as well. These men in Jesus' time looked like they were reverent and obedient, but God, but Jesus had very strong criticism for that outward show of obedience when their heart wasn't in it. So the story of Cain and Abel serves for both us as a warning and as an encouragement. Cain's offering was not acceptable, but Abel's was. We learned from Abel that an acceptable offering springs from a sincere and worshipful heart. Abel's heart was bent on honoring the holy and living God. Offerings made to the Lord with a sincere and reverent heart are pleasing to him. So giving freely of our income is certainly part of that, uh, of that equation as we offer something to the Lord. But also there are so many other acts of sacrifice that I know are a regular part of your lives as well. That might look like bringing a meal to someone who's sick. That might look like giving of your limited free time to a neighbor or a friend or a family member when you really... Um, Wish you had time to do something else and not ever expecting anything return. I have got to um, watch many of you over the years um, do many sacrificial acts, large and small, that I know are pleasing to the Lord. And do you remember what Jesus told his disciples about offerings in the book of Mark? Look with me on your verse sheet at Mark 12. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he, this is Jesus, called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put everything she had in it, all that she had to live on. So that is an offering of true worship. And it was so pleasing to God that this sweet widow, who we don't even know her name, is forever recorded in Scripture. Her heart of worship led her to give the best of what she had. And Abel and his heart of worship led him to give the firstborn of his flock and reverence to what he knew was the holy and living God. And God was surely pleased with him and had regard for that offering. And God is surely pleased with us when we give the best of what we have to give. So you can be assured that when you are giving, whatever it is that you're giving to the Lord, out of a pure and loving heart, he is so pleased with that. And though God did not have regard for Cain's offering, he deals with God with profound patience. So think for a minute of a time when you've been wrong or shorted. Um, I know that I can have a really quick response 
of um, wanting to get what rightfully belongs to me. But God shows such great restraint, um, such great grace when he responds to Cain in what is a remarkably fatherly way. He essentially pulls Cain aside after he, Cain has made this offering that he has no regard for, that wasn't pleasing to him, and gives Cain what I think is the first ever father-son talk in recorded human history. So I'm known at home for running a um, pretty tight ship, but there are times when those boys of mine um, don't need a mom and a mom's advice. What they need is a dad. And there are times when I have seen um, my husband pull my boys aside and um, they come away from these father-son, man-to-man chats with a whole new attitude on life, and I love it. Their dad has a way of um, steering them toward attitude adjustments that I just cannot, and I'm so grateful for that father-son relationship and so grateful for him that he does that. And I can tell you that those chats at my house um, almost always happen out of anyone else's earshot. I don't know what's said there. Um, and honestly, it doesn't even really matter to me what's said there. But what I know is that they come away with a different attitude and heart. But it's so fun that here in chapter 4, we get to listen in on God and Cain's father-son chat, this man-to-man chat. And I think that's just an awesome privilege that we get to hear this conversation between God and man. And even just what a beautiful thing it is that God speaks so personally to Cain. And to Cain, God says this, do the right thing. I've given you a conscience. I've given you my word. I've told you how to properly worship me. If you will do what is right, if you will turn from your sinful desire and seek me, it will go well with you. But if you are not, if you do not, you are allowing yourself to become really perilously vulnerable to the devastation that sin will cause in your life. The imagery that God uses here in this talk is serious, and it is meant to be taken seriously. Take a look at this picture here. You know, I look at this picture, and I think, what sane person would deliberately step into the path of a hungry animal with teeth like that? And yet, it is exactly what Cain did and exactly what we are doing when we choose to step into sin. When we hear that small and God-given voice in our head that says, don't do that, and we do it anyway, we're stepping right into that. Don't do it. I hope that I can remember, and I've looked at this picture several times, I hope that I can remember this picture the next time that I step into a situation where I have a choice, a choice between saying something I should and I shouldn't, um, saying a, a choice between opening my mouth at all when I shouldn't, um, a choice between sin and obedience to God. I don't want to step into the mouth of that lion when I have a choice for a way out. Look with me at verse 2, or at the second verse on your um, on your verse sheet. I think there's two verses here that give us some really powerful tools when we have that choice between 
stepping into the mouth of that angry lion and walking away from it. Look at Romans 6. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. And then look at 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has, over, or has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So let me say here that this man-to-man talk with Cain and God is about general principles. There are, of course, times, and we could all list them, um, things we've observed in our own world, when life does not go well for the righteous man. And we have also observed people who seem to do evil over and over and seem to get away with it. Um, But God is a a God not just of grace, but also of justice. And we can trust him when he tells us that he eventually makes all things right. We don't always get to see in this lifetime what that ends up looking like, what his justice is, but we can rest on the promise that it is there and that God is good and that it will go well with us when we choose to obey. God knows our hearts and he judges our true motives, a pattern of giving in to our sinful desires leads us to a devastating and dangerous place where sin takes a foothold in our lives and it will always lead to dangerous consequences. It may not literally be that lion with his giant teeth around us, but the consequences are really no different. A pattern of resisting sin and pursuing obedience leads to a life of God's protection from that angry lion. Let me be clear here for for those of us who um, by faith have trusted in the death and resurrection of Christ and we now belong to him forever. We neither earn our salvation nor can we lose it by our actions. Once we've placed our faith in Christ, we are sealed with her spirit, and we are his forever. And praise God that he gives us his Holy Spirit once we do that, that um, is with us always. And that Holy Spirit within us gives us both the desire and the ability to overcome our power, the sin and the power of it in our lives. Listen to what God says through his prophet Ezekiel on your verse sheet, Ezekiel 36. I love this. God says, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The Holy Spirit has given us that. Let's not ignore it. Let's use that. It is by God's power that we are able to resist sin. Praise God for that. So let's continue in our text. Follow along with me as I read verses 8 through 16. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. This is sometime after this talk that is, happens between um, God and Abel. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. 
Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So God's talk with Cain was to no avail. Cain did not listen. He has committed what appears to be premeditated murder. And here we are only in that second generation of mankind. And already it's come to this. Cain's lack of faith and his lack of love for God shows itself in envy and jealousy and anger and defying personal responsibility and misplaced blame. The sum of that all is this callous disregard for the life of even his own brother. And again, God comes to Cain and personally asks a question. Of course, God already knows the answer to that question. And Cain lies to God in this just astonishingly disrespectful way. He shows no remorse. And honestly, I think at this point you could reasonably expect lightning to come out of the sky and strike Cain dead um, and turn him into this smoldering pile of ashes so deep in the ground you don't even see it anymore. And I will tell you that as I've studied this, I have... um, turned this conversation between God and Cain over in my mind probably a thousand times, and I still cannot decide how it is that Cain speaks to God. I don't know if he's angry or sullen or um, sarcastic or um, disrespectful. Obviously, it's disrespectful, but I I can't imagine exactly what his tone of voice is uh, when he tells God, nope, I don't know where Abel is, and besides, I'm not his keeper anyway. But the biblical truth is this. Yes, yes, he is his brother's keeper, and so are we. We are clearly called in Scripture um, to care both for our physical family and our spiritual family as well. We are to do good to our um, family and not harm. Look with me at Romans 12 on your verse sheet. Pretty straightforward. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Cain couldn't have um, done anything more directly opposed to God's word. And then 1 Peter 3.8 says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And though Cain has an epic fail here, God shows him great mercy. Cain's not a pile of ashes on the ground, but he will be cursed. He will be cursed with land that is even harder to work than it already was based on the curse that happened prior in Genesis. Um, He will be cursed with a separation from his community, from his land, and from his creator. 
He will be without peace, but God will mercifully put this mark of some sort on on Cain that communicates to everyone around him that his life must not be taken from him. This murderer is personally marked and protected by God um, from the same fate. I think that's so interesting. Later on in Genesis, God will tell us that whoever sheds man's blood um, will have his own blood shed, but in his great love, God spares Cain of this just punishment. Yet Cain's just relentless selfishness fails to comprehend or respond to God's mercy here. Instead, he whines about his exile and he fears for his own life. And yet, I think in his self-absorption, he somehow does get an inkling, at least, and understands somehow the absolute truth that life without God exposes us to every kind of danger. In verse 14, Cain realizes that God's face will be hidden from him and all the meaningful relationships in his life will be lost. Prior to this, Cain has chosen to turn his face from God, and now God turns his face from Cain. Um, And we now have this mental picture that sin is a vicious beast that is devouring Cain. Cain did not heed God's warning, and those teeth and those claws are tearing him apart. Though he gets to keep his very life, we know uh, that what he loves will no longer be his his land, his way of making a living, and his relationships. Sin destroys our fellowship with God, and it it destroys our fellowship with other people. Look at Isaiah 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. In this encounter between Cain and God, we see a pattern that is unfortunately repeated over and over in the scriptures. This pattern of man choosing to willfully turn his back on God and his blessings. And nothing good ever comes of that. Okay, so at this point, I think we're all probably so depressed that maybe we want to just go and have an early lunch and maybe stuff ourselves with like onion rings or chocolate or something. Uh, It gets pretty serious right about here, Um, thinking about all these crummy, crummy choices that Cain has made and the ramifications of that. But um, hold tight with me. Unfortunately, it actually gets worse before it gets wetter, but... Man's right response to God is coming, and I promise it's coming before we leave this room today. So we go back to Cain and his family. Follow along with me as I read verses 17 to 24. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city. He called the name of the city after his son. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahushal, and Mahushal fathered Methushal, and Methushal fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. 
He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sisters of Tubal-Cain, the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And in these verses we see that Cain's family tree um, and what it looks like. Cain marries and he has children and those children have children. And all the while there are these great technological and cultural advancements taking place. And isn't it interesting that we live in an age with a lot of cultural and technological advance taking place. There are so many parallels if we look carefully in this chapter to what our lives look like today. Cities were built during this time. And think of all what came with cities. There would have been housing and transportation and some kind of organized government and some kind of sanitation and lots of other things that go with that as well. And we see that some of these folks become nomads and um, learn the ways of animal husbandry. Others became skillful in building tools, and those tools would have been used to build all kinds of other useful things in their society. And there are even those who made and played instruments. It applies all through here that their lives are about much more than mere survival um, and that art and beauty and technology and culture were meaningful to them. And so let me take just a very quick aside here and tell you um, that this is the history of early man. Between Genesis chapter 2 and 4, there are only nine generations of people. And so notice that in all of this technology, this is not the description of, you know, the ape-like grunting caveman dressed like someone from the Flintstones with like a club in one hand and dragging someone by the hair into his, into his cave with another. These were smart and skillful and accomplished people who were an awful lot like you and I. Um, and that's just something I want you to chew on and think about, that um, this uh, description of this early generation of man is much different than what um, the world tells us that early man looked like. So these descendants of Cain pursued advancements of every kind, and God graciously granted them success in these pursuits. But these men and women did not pursue God. And we know that because there is no mention of God in these, um, in these verses. They um, pursue these good and God-given things. And I will tell you that I love that I get to live in a world with technology and culture um, and medicine. I love that I get to live in a world with um, air conditioners and iPods and iPads and antibiotics. And the problem comes um, not with those things, but when they or when we pursue science and technology and art and culture and fulfillment and meaning in those things instead of in the giver of those good things. Cain's family line pursued the gifts of God rather than God himself. And that led to their total moral destruction. And so I think we can look around our world today and get a good idea of what that world looked like. And I love how Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, and the truth is we can enjoy our iPhones and our air conditioning and our antibiotics and still seek God with all of our hearts. Or we could get rid of all of those things and still seek God with all our hearts. I don't think 
what we do with our technology is the important part so much as where our hearts are and that we place God before his gifts. So remember when I told you that it was going to get worse before it gets better. We have that here in Lamech. Seven generations after Cain comes his descendant, Lamech. And if you look back at verse 19, the first thing we hear about him is that Lamech took two wives. It astonishes me that anyone ever thought it would be a good idea to have more than one wife, that that would ever be a plan that would lead to um, peace and harmony in someone's household. I'm pretty sure that's not what Lamech was thinking about anyway. So here we are with this man who has perverted God's idea of what marriage is, a permanent union between one man and one woman set in Genesis 2. And then the very next bit of personal information we get about this man comes in verse 23 when he just flippantly and boastfully reports to his two wives that he has killed a young man who has struck him. It looks like Lamech and this younger man got in a fight of some sort. Um, and Lamech is the older man. Instead of employing some wisdom and diffusing this situation, escalates it in these huge proportions. In the end, Lamech murders this man. He, this man, a life that God created in his image, needlessly ended. Vengeance just taken to the extreme. And when Lamech declares to his wives that if Cain's revenge was sevenfold and his is seven, seventy-sevenfold, what he's doing here is boasting. He is saying that he will have much more personal protection than, despite his crimes than Cain did. Lamech is just a nasty guy. And so far we've got bigamy, we've got murder, we have thumbing his nose at God. And Lamech is the culmination of a family line who turned away from God. We see generational sin and in the extreme. He had choices, just like Cain did. He had a choice whether he would devote himself all his life to one woman. He had a choice um, and that fight about whether he would escalate the situation or defuse it, whether he would choose peace or violence, um, whether he would give in to his anger or, and, or not let it overwhelm him. Sin was crouching at, at Lamech's door, just like that angry lion. And instead of crying out to God for help when he was tempted, he ignored God. So his sin devoured him, and it devoured this young man. And who knows the ripple effect, how other many people's life it devoured um, as the result of this murder. This is the last we hear of Lamech and a good riddance to him. I'm glad to be done with him. When we remember both Cain and Lamech, let's remember to take seriously God's warning that flirting with sin is dangerous business. Cain and Lamech's stories serve as cautionary tales for us, and I don't know about you, but I do not ever want any part of my life to be someone else's cautionary tale. So let's flee from sin and let's pursue righteousness knowing that God blesses us when we do that. Look at what the prophet Amos says on your verse sheet. Seek good and not evil that you may live and so that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Okay, now if you will, look back with me at the text and let's finish out this chapter in verses 25 and 26. Follow along with me. 
And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also she bore a son, and he called his name Enosh, and at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So we come back again to Adam and Eve. Remember that these men um, and women lived a long time in this day. Adam and Eve are still around and still having children. And chapter 5, by the way, tells us that Adam was 130 years old when this son Seth is born. And it's also interesting that these stories of the sons of Adam and Eve form a bookend to chapter 4. We start the chapter with Cain and Abel, and we end the chapter with the other son, Seth. And here, finally, at the end of the chapter, we get to reach the end of their wretchedness, and we find hope. So where is God at work here? First look at Eve. Notice her shift in language between the beginning of chapter 4, when she says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord, and then here where she says, God has appointed for me another offspring. She admits at the beginning that God gave her some help, but the language is almost parenthetical. It's as if she did this great thing. God was kind of there helping out. But by the time that she has Seth, she gives total credit to God. It sure looks like over these years and in her hardship, Eve has grown in humility She no longer views her child as her singular accomplishment, but as the gift of God that it is. Now, biblical names, particularly in the Old Testament, often hold um, special meaning or significance. And this name, Seth, like the name Adam, simply means man. But embedded in the name Seth in this original language is a sense of weakness, or probably what would be better described as dependency. Enveloped in his name that Adam and Eve gave him is this truth that man was not created to be independent from God, to turn his back on him, but to be dependent on God in all things. It looks like Eve has grown in her understanding of her dependence upon God. She has grown in humility. She has grown in wisdom. And I love that it's one of the great paradoxes of our faith is that when we realize um, that we are dependent on God, that is where we find our true strength. Look at Psalm 28, 7. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exalts, and with my song I give strength to him. With the passing of years... Eve has grown in spiritual maturity. And so here is where we find the hope for future generations because she can now rear this child and any of the others that she is still having according to truth in a way that she was not equipped to before. And the long-term legacy of these children who are influenced by a woman who loves God is not to be underestimated. And we will see that as we look at Seth's line and um, the faithful men and women who come from that. Notice also that Eve specifically acknowledges that this son, Seth, is a replacement for Abel, whose faith was pleasing to God. She is acknowledging here that God has been generous and faithful to the family and providing another son who will continue this branch in the family tree Um, replacing 
the line of Abel that Cain destroyed. And it is through this branch in the family tree um, that will be the men and women who call on the name of the Lord. God has not given up on those he created. So we're jumping ahead for just a minute, but know that Noah comes from the family line of Seth. And he was certainly a faithful man of God. And that's not all the good news. Seth has a son named Enosh. And it is during the time of Seth and Enosh that people begin to call on the name of the Lord. So here's another beginning. The origin of prayer and of men calling on the name of God and acting on the knowledge that God is so mighty that even calling on his name has great power. Later in Genesis, we see Abraham call on the name of the Lord. Look at uh, Genesis 12:8, And from there he, Abraham, moved to the hill country to the east of Bethel and pitched his tent. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Later we also see Isaac and Moses and Samuel and David and Elijah and Paul and other great men and women of the faith who are calling on the name of the Lord in Scripture and that practice the speech so powerfully of man's reverence for God and God's great strength begins right here. It says people trusted God, they prayed to God, and they were faithful to God. You know, I learned some years ago from someone to pray for my family that there would be an unbroken um, chain of faithful Christ followers between now and the time that Jesus returns. And that is a prayer I pray for my family. There are a few um, Christ followers in my own um, family here and there, but I really don't come from this unbroken line that I can see of um, great-grandparents and grandparents and parents um, who followed the Lord, and then you see that in your children and um, hope to see that in your children and grandchildren and so on. But I get to look at this passage here and see that my spiritual heritage begins here. And I'm so grateful um, that despite the rebellion and the sinfulness of man, God has always protected and provided for a faithful remnant that continue on in the faith. And so those of us who have um, trusted Christ for the forgiveness of our sins are descended from these people right here. They are our spiritual heritage and our spiritual family. And so sometime between here and now, these people have passed their faith on, who have passed their faith on, who have passed their faith on, and it has gotten to us. And we get to do the same thing as well. Look at Psalm 78, 4. We will not hide them from their children, but tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders of what he has done. Our fantastic children's ministry here at Christ Chapel uses this verse in their name, um, and I think it's a great one for us as well. And when I'm dead and gone and um, home with the Lord, um, and the that, that next generation will probably only remember a small handful of things about me, and I can tell you that I hope that I am remembered as a woman of prayer and as someone who walked faithfully with, a God, with God from the time I was 17 until I take my last breath. Um, Genesis records just a handful of essential information about their faithful of God. And truthfully, most of us will probably be only remembered for just a handful of essential things. So if it's my desire to be remembered as a woman um, of prayer and faith, I must live my life 
um, as a woman of trust and faith and prayer and commitment of God, just as Seth and his family did. And so as we reflect on this chapter, I'd love it if we could spend some time considering um, the places in our lives where we're already doing this, and then also to consider what choices we might want to make in our daily lives so that our lives do um, reflect us as women of prayer, as women of devotion and obedience to God, as women who are committed to God. You know, the story of Adam and Eve's children is a story of opposites. It's a story of obedience and disobedience. It's a story of life and death. It's a story of blessings and of destruction. Um, and because of our free will that God gives us, we get to choose what path we're going to take. Listen in this last verse to what Moses says to God's people in Deuteronomy 11. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I commanded you today, and the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God. But turn aside from the way I am commanding you today and go after other gods that you have not known. God has given us the great gift of his word, and he shows us that obedience will always lead to blessing. Life is full of challenges for every one of us, challenges great and small, but we also have endless choices as to whether we will serve ourselves or whether we will serve the living God. And in every one of those challenging places um, and in every choice we make about whom we will serve, we always have this assurance that God is good all the time and that all the time God is good. He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our sacrifices. He is worthy of our obedience. He is worthy of our trust. So let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that you never leave us or forsake us. I thank you for that faithful remnant of people who um, from the beginning have chosen to walk with you. And I pray that every one of us in this room would choose to be your faithful followers um, every day of our lives as well. I pray that you would bless these women. I thank you so much for their obedience and willingness to be here um, and to dive deeply into your word. And we just thank you, God. I pray that you would give us um, that desire to love and obey you more every day. In your holy name we pray. Amen.